Overlooking Phoenix, from high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios, Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Brought to you by OfficerPrivacy.com, the company's officers trust with their online privacy. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of the Badge Boys, the show where two retired cops talk to the community. I'm retired Crime Stopper Sergeant Darren Birch, and unfortunately not in studio is Jason Sheckerly. Uh, but we have an outstanding show for you. We have a retired cop uh, out of South Florida, and we know, <laughs> know there are crazy things happen out of Florida. Uh, Glenn Toppings is going to join us. He was also with the military police. He was also a uh, bodyguard for the music industry, and he was on that TV show Cops back in the heyday and has some really funny stories and is a uh, uh, author with four books to his credit. Uh, then we go into cop talk. We're going to talk about the FBI crime stats that just came out. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of microcosm. We're going to talk about what happened in Arizona here specifically and how the media dealt with it. Kind of interesting. And then in the last segment, we're going to have loony laws, heroic headlines, and I will attempt to f- and fail miserably doing Jason's inspirational clothes. So stay tuned, stay informed, and most of all, you can be entertained after this word from our sponsor, Officer Privacy. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. OfficerPrivacy.com is offering a special deal for listeners of this podcast. This is a great deal. Go to OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. Their team of current and retired law enforcement officers will remove your information from the top three sites that are showing your home address, phone number, and more. Sign up at OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. You can also follow the link on our show notes. Well, my, my, my. We happen to know that guy. Criminals think they are so smart. The problem for them is the police are smarter. Detectives resolve things. They don't give up. I'm not the only one who answered the call. I am retired Sergeant Darren Bird. Detective Chris McMullen. Detective Frank Dillard. Robert Cushing. Vermont State Police. Now, where did he come from? Every detective has that one case. This is that one case for me. He thinks he can outsmart these detectives. Well, he has another thing coming. You're not going to be able to run from it. You want to find that smoking gun. He does what he was made to do. Find the bad guy. That is, as they say in tennis, game, set, and match. American Detective, coming exclusively to Discovery Plus, early 2021. Learn more at discoveryplus.com. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Robin. Yes, it Darren. Was, it was interesting. We had something occurred over the weekend. We dealt with it. Uh, we had a couple of people that didn't like a certain cop, and they basically went on and badmouthed this cop who was our guest many, many, many shows ago. I mean, it was probably maybe even a year ago. And the guy or the person, you know, I'm not going to give them any credit. I'm not going to tell you who the officer is. But basically, they kind of reared their ugly stalking head and began talking some foul stuff about the officer. Mm-hmm. And you brought up a great point. You said, God, I hope that officer has officer privacy. 
Yeah, because you don't need to be attacked on social media for doing something. Everybody, you know, you don't know the situation until you know the situation. So, you know, we have to protect ourselves. It's not, this is not just for officers. It's for everybody. And like Pete always talks about, half his clientele are officers, the other half are real estate agents and other people like me, normal average people that are in the public eye doing things. And I really hope this officer does have officerprivacy.com because he's going to need it. Yeah, I've already spoken to him and, and even prior to this because this wasn't the first time it's happened, but it, it was kind of timely, so I thought I'd kind of mention in regards to our shout out to Officer Privacy. So delete your private information from the internet so you can feel safe again. Officer Privacy's team of current and former LEOs will remove your information from the top people search sites that expose your personal information. And as Rock and Robin always puts out so perfectly, this is for everybody i just can't help to worry about my brothers and sisters in blue uh i tell you uh we have a really interesting guest uh i i love everything about florida as you know we used to do a lot of the uh <laughs> the, we joke about florida the stupid uh, suspect stories we had uh yeah florida always comes up and uh so well, we had, i'm i'm a floridian by birth let's oh, just I didn't know that. yeah miami okay. beach but we moved here to arizona when i was three so i'm it still says miami beach florida okay. on my birth you, certificate you probably even at age you know Three, remember some really crazy stuff that went on. In, oh, yeah. Uh, it's crazy. It's crazy it out there. It is crazy. So we have Glenn Toppings, a uh, published author of four novels. Uh, he retired from a uh, sheriff's office in South Florida. He was a uh, Army sergeant with the military police. Uh, he was a hostage negotiator for SWAT over 13 years. Uh, I, I want to say upon retirement, I could be wrong, but I, um, I think after retirement, he was a bodyguard in the music industry, uh, the musical entertainment field, really, and was on the TV show Cops in his first season, that inaugural season back in 1989. So he has some really great stories. We've talked with him a little bit before the show started, but uh, I want to get a, a feel for his career. So without further ado, I want to introduce to you a retired Sergeant Glenn Topping. Glenn, welcome to Badge Boys, my friend. Thank you, Darren. Very much. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about what Jason always says why did you raise your hand and sign on the on the line in terms of your uh, taking an oath to be a cop? What was it that drove you to this profession? Well, actually, it was when I was a little kid growing up, which I, I detail in my book, Look a Quarter, that growing up watching all the TV cop shows, it looked like it just looked like a fun, exciting job to do. And I followed that through my career up until when I retired. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people love the excitement. There's there's definitely the adrenaline rush. There's definitely that pride in, in serving your community. I, I think that's a common factor with all us who have retired. There's some that may be heavy-handed. We've seen that, unfortunately. Uh, but to me, I, I, what I've seen is a drop in the ocean. Um, how about yourself in terms of the department that you worked for? Um, you know, was it kind of like my story in, in terms of just a, a great ride or did you have some ups and downs? Well, I mean, you know, we all have ups and downs and after you're 20, 25 years on the job uh, and then including the military police ups and downs. Uh, you know, I worked in a very progressive, large uh, sheriff's office here in South Florida. And, uh, and I went up the ranks and I got promoted to sergeant. And then I was the, I became like the fourth senior sergeant in the agency just by seniority. Uh, but, you know, through my tenure with the sheriff's office, um, unfortunately, I had to deal with bad cops. Uh, one day I'm working with them, the next day I'm putting handcuffs on them. Ugh. And it was a very demoralizing issue, you know, because, you know, one bad cop ruins it for everybody else. 
Oh, you're absolutely right. We, I mean, my God, we had the summer of riots. I call 2020 the rioting 20s instead of the roaring 20s. And we definitely saw that based on one homicidal cop in terms of, and depending on how people think about it, you know, Jason Sheckley and I both thought it was a, a solid uh, a homicide, second degree, in terms of George Floyd's murder. But it was one cop. Yes, I agree. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, but it was one, and I have yet... I'll be honest with you. I have yet to find a cop that disagrees with that account uh, because we were more uh, – I was more taken back than my friends in terms of what I saw. It was just appalling to me what I saw. And like you said, it, it tarnishes the badge for us all and one bad cop. But it's horrible how uh, false nerve has, has sprung from that, from these anti-cop groups. And we're going to talk more about that in Cop Talk, so I don't want to spend too much time with it with you. But uh, I do appreciate your, your sentiment on that. I would love to know um, what it was like to be a hostage negotiator. Uh, and you did that for 13 years. What, can can yes. you kind of give me a feel for that? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, first, when I saw the posting, um, you know, you had to go through the training. You had to get an interview. Then you had to have this psychological exam with the psychiatrist. And then you did a, had to do a practical exercise. And then my first call out was very, uh, very nerve-wracking because I didn't know what to do, really. You know, I had my training. Uh, but after a while, learning and watching from the chief negotiator what to do and what to say and what not to say, especially, uh, I became fairly good at it to the point where I became the second in command of the uh, negotiating team. And what, it was exciting. I thought it was, it was very, to me, it was more exciting than local police work. When you look back, and I hate to put you on the spot, but was there one negotiation, was there one uh, incident that kind of stands out from the rest, whether it was difficult, whether it was funny, whether it was nerve-wracking? Is there one that just kind of stays with you in retirement that you look back on? If you were to tell that one story, that would be the story, if you will. Well, it's actually, there's a couple of them. You know, when you lose, when you're talking with somebody who's hell-bent on committed suicide and you're doing your best to, to, you know, prevent that from happening, and then you see them do it in front of you, that's what was tough. Um, you know, we had a one, one incident where a, uh, a guy high on cocaine took these two women hostage. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, the SWAT team, one part of the team moved up to the window where they could see inside. And apparently the guy made some kind of a move with the knife, he had a knife towards these women, and they shot and killed them from the window. Mm. But, you know, and not hurting any of the women. We were able to get them out safely. Oh. Another issue was when I was talking to this guy in his, in, his, in his backyard, he was sitting on the ground with a shotgun to his chest, and his wife was sitting next to him holding on to him. And then you know, he's, for whatever reason, five minutes into, the, into talking with him, he pulls the trigger. And kills himself while his wife is holding on to him. Bless her heart. And those two issues, many, many years ago, still stick with me today. Yeah, it's no wonder when we talk about PTSI, or some people say PTSD, um, that, you know, the, the collective nature of what we witness, you know, day in, day out is, is difficult. But those there's some that stand out. And I know when I wrote my book, um, or my books, I guess I should say, um, it brought back some bad memories and my books are mostly funny and yet it brought right. back some some ugly times as well um and and a lot of people think i wrote the book to be like a cathartic journey i'm curious what prompted you uh in retirement if it was in retirement when you started writing your books what prompted that well the, my first book called the hurt initially started off with a uh, a movie screenplay 
because it was a true crime drama that we, that I that that occurred in uh, 1989 at a rock and roll club when I was working as a bouncer and we had a drive-by shooting homicide of one of the bouncers. And the guy died, come to, come to find out the guy had died in my arms in the parking lot. The, the bouncer had been shot and killed. Uh, and the story had progressed to when these guys eventually got uh, captured. Uh, led me to believe that, well, maybe this would make a good movie because it had all the elements of a good movie or at least a good Law & Order episode. So for many, many years later, I decided to sit down. Uh, and this was, I guess, when the pandemic started because when I was working, we weren't working. So I figured, let me just put this thing together. So I put it together. And then I got with a screenwriter, a helper in California, and we put this script together. And then I got with a friend of mine who is now the executive producer from The Amazing Race. Back in the day, he was the, he was the cameraman for the TV show Cops. And I go, listen, would you maybe want to produce this, this screenplay? He goes, oh, I'm very busy right now, but maybe if you get somebody to transform it into a book, into a novel with you, maybe you can go from book to, to movie. So that's where it started. And obviously, I didn't sell the, sell the script. It's not that easy. <laughs> uh, and how has that been uh, received by uh, both fans and colleagues alike? Uh, well, the book, uh, the book mainly... Uh, you know, dealing with the people I work with at the time, and they're still around today, and they and they all bought the book, and they go, well, this brings us back to, I remember that day. Uh, and then I've even had some other law enforcement people come in, because I'm a driving school instructor right now. It's kind of funny. Uh, and uh, a lot of uh, parents that come in that are cops, they go, oh, I remember that. I remember that era. I was there. I remember it was the cocaine cowboy days back in the 80s. So a lot of them relate to it that weren't literally living around then. They're, they're out now. They know it. Gotcha, gotcha. And you mentioned uh, this this producer who was a cameraman for Cops. I have to bring up your your time on that show. How many segments were you in? Was it you know was it off and on for a season? Because I know they kind of moved around all over the country, but Florida, uh, you know, especially South Florida, was uh, really popular for the Cops TV show. Can you tell us how that came about and uh, sure. what that experience was like? Well, back in 1989, I was I was in the office, and my chief calls me in, and there's, there's this guy in there in a suit, and he goes, listen, they're doing this TV show called Cops, where they ride around with you, and they film whatever you do. And I go, they go you do want to be part of that? And I go, well, okay, sure, sounds exciting. Of course, because they picked me as like one of the most aggressive guys on the road. So I met with the with this guy who was one of the producers, I think, at the time, or with the camera, I don't remember anymore now. And they, uh, they rode with me for about a week and a half. And I think it was in about six episodes where they, they just filmed me from, you know, beginning to end of a shift. And uh, during those six episodes, because uh, I, I have a, a buddy who was in one here in Phoenix, and it was hilarious because they really do kind of put the best out there. I mean, they like you, you can probably test. They kind of film, 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 and then that which is, you know, juicy they, is stuff that actually makes the episode. Uh, you were in six, so I can't help but think you had some good episodes. And it was a couple, you know, most of it is really, you know, typical, you know, mundane kind of calls, you know, you went to a burglary or a theft or, uh, but we had one incident where we had a, um, a family of four, a parent and two little kids were shoplifting a bunch of meat from local grocery store. And then we happened to get right behind them as they were fleeing the area. So we were chasing them through the city. And as we're chasing them through the city, the, the kids in the back seat started to pelt my car with packages of chicken and steaks and chops and whatever else they had that were meat. They were throwing the meat at us. 
And uh, eventually they stopped. We, you know, we arrested them and, and took care of the problem and collected the meat. And it was kind of ironic, though, many, many years later, uh, when I talked to this executive producer from The Amazing Race, he goes, um, you remember that meat case we had? And I go, how do you remember something like that? It was like 30 years ago and all the TV cop shows you've done. How do you remember that one? Because that one always stuck out of my mind. I love it. I love it. Uh, you know, I can almost see you grabbing because I, you know, you're you were a bodyguard, so I got a feeling you're kind of a big guy. I can see you grabbing one of those kids by the ear and say, "Now clean up this mess." <laughs> Try to clean. Yeah. Well, luckily, it was before body cams. <laughs> Good point. Um, tell us about. Um, this journey of writing books, is it something that y- you felt was cathartic? I-, I did for me personally. Was it cathartic? Yeah, it, it was. It, it, tell me a little bit about that. Well, after the first one, uh, you know, my wife is on my butt a little bit. You know, why are you writing? Why are you spending all this money? Blah, blah, blah. I listen, something I always wanted to do. Uh, and, you know, I, was, I always wrote a lot of letters to the editors over the years. And I felt like if I sit down and I, and I take the time, I could really come up with a decent story, which luckily for me, The Hurt was a true story. So that led me to do more and just be more disciplined in trying to get a storyline going. So after the first one, I, I started doing another one a short time later after that one was published and out for a while. And that one was called Operation 1600. And that's a fiction. It was about a, it's about a, um, uh, a corrupt U.S. president that uh, creates a, uh, so much turmoil in the, in the world that it results, in, it results in a nuclear war with Russia. Is he also senile? And, Just uh, curious. Is he also senile <laughs> and babbling? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's another, that's another sequel. <laughs> Predicting the future, um, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Um, and then after I got done with that one, <clears throat> I went and I started to do something. Let me talk about my crazy life. And that's why I came up with Look a Quarter. And Look a Quarter came upon when I was uh, a small kid with my friend in New York. We were at this amusement park, and we had no money. So we looked at looking under the machines for, like, quarters and dimes, whatever we could find. And we both looked at, a, at each other at the same time and said, hey, Look a Quarter. So when I was talking to my friend about doing this book, he goes, why don't you call it Look a Quarter? I go, okay, that sounds interesting. I'll do that. And it's just an autobiographical anecdote from my life when I was a little kid growing up to how I followed the same with, you know, interested in being in police work through my civilian jobs, to the military, and then through the sheriff's office, and to, to today, what I'm doing now. How long did you uh, stay in New York? And, and what type of, um, was it the big city that you saw? Because I'm kind of curious what you think now, where the Big Apple is almost becoming a rotten well, apple. Yeah, well, the city, I didn't live in the city of Manhattan. I lived in the suburbs in, the, in Queens. Um, but it, it's, it's so unfortunate as to what you see in New York is like now. It's not like it was 10 years ago. You know, you don't really, you don't even want to fly over the city. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And I, I was fortunate. I uh, visited some family there um, before it got really bad. And, oh, it's just it's such a beautiful big city. And, and the people are actually nice. Um, it's funny because I had, um, was going from, you know, the transit, how the transit works there is everywhere. And um, right. I was paying something and my wallet fell out and didn't notice it. And I am getting a call uh, for someone that found my wallet 
and I went, picked it up, and um, oh god, I'm going to screw up this uh, the word Massapequa. Am I saying that almost right? Oh, yeah. yeah, Long Island. Yeah, Long Island. Yeah, and sure enough, they had my wallet. And there wasn't a dime missing. There's good people in New York, and it's a Was shame. Any extra money in it? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but uh, it is amazing. They weren't that nice. Yeah, it's amazing the good people and what the politicians and and the ugly anti-cop atmosphere has created. I was curious what your take is what you've seen now that you're retired you can speak freely uh what is your take on this uh the, you know if i would call it the the rioting 20s what was your take well i thought it was absolutely despicable how the some of the uh city governments mainly democrats uh, let their cops be attacked and brutalized on a daily basis and with no backing from them why don't they put a uniform on on and take their position for one night let them see what they do but no, it's easier to sit behind the desk and criticize. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I use the word funny, and of course, I'm using air quotes because I don't mean funny. Uh, that right. we forgot, and I say we, the media, the politicians, the celebrities, the the anyone with a microphone, unfortunately, um, forgot that over two thousand police officers were injured in just the first weeks of that yep. riot and let alone the carnage that has come down and uh, i was recently asked to do some sound on radio why there's uh, the increase in homicide rate and uh, i was i wasn't surprised to learn that uh, <laughs> my segment didn't air because i let let them have it um oh. <laughs> speaking really they didn't let you speak i know wow I know. that's why we have a podcast so we can speak truth to uh falsehoods um tell it's us about culture what, oh god it is forever um but you know i i've been having this argument with my dear friend and co-host jason sheckley i believe there's a paradigm shift i believe there's so many more good people that are that, that are tired of what's going on and the stats have unfortunately uh confirmed our suspicions on what would happen when you allow crime to go amok uh the crime goes amok <laughs> and the uh, how would you how would you not believe that if you defund the police or you cut their <laughs> funding or you you get rid of them that things aren't going to go bad exactly exactly i mean how, who, who believes that everything would be fine uh, only those who hate cops and the stupid politicians right. that bought into it but i i you know you're hearing more and more of these loons like um lightfoot and the other that have kind of went back on what oh. they've been saying and now are, are wanting more police officers and wanting resources. Right. And yeah, I think there is a paradigm shift back to n normalcy. It's just a big shift to turn, I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it had to come to that. Look at the, you know, the murder rate and the crime spikes. I mean, you can't walk down the street today without looking over your shoulder every 30 seconds. Yeah, and especially when you're in a city like New York or Los Angeles right. or Seattle or Portland where the uh, yeah, politicians especially have. especially those, those West Side cities. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. But, uh, hey, I'm going to get back on your book. Uh, if you could tell us where we can find the book and what is your latest book uh, as well. Well, the latest one is, a, is called the, uh, the Real Story Behind the Hurt and the Rise and Fall of Extremists. It supposedly takes place, from, it carries over from the original book, The Hurt, 25 years later, and how the extremists moved into all these rock and roll clubs, hiding in plain sight, only to do harm to their communities and to the cities. And these books can be found in, uh, on, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Kindle and Nook, if you like an audio book. I love it. Uh, I'm going to definitely get my copy today, uh, both The Hurt and the uh, sequel. And I think it's really neat that you use 
uh, you, you know what you know from your times as a cop, also from the uh, you know the musical entertainment industry. You know, being a uh, uh, you know balancer, bodyguard, you know, and kind of infusing that into uh, you know um, nonfiction. I think it's really cool. Good for you. Yeah, it was something to do. Let me kill some time. <laughs> it's all about <laughs> retirement. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for joining Badge Boys. And uh, well, thank you very much. And we'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I'm Pete James, a retired law enforcement officer who has a passion for the safety and security of those in the profession. OfficerPrivacy.com offers a full range of privacy services that removes your personal information from the internet so you and your family can feel safe and secure in your home. OfficerPrivacy.com will keep you safe. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. I really enjoyed that last segment with Glenn. I mean, we hit so many different things. We hit uh, the meat thing. I know. Helped by uh, meat. uh, Talked about uh, the current times. Uh, I'm going to go back and do an internet search just to see if I can find that episode of Cops where they were throwing the meat back. Because if they really did capture that on camera, oh, I want to yeah. see it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, what a nice career in writing these books. And, and <laughs> as he said, eh, give me something to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. You and I know what that's like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No <laughs> doubt. Um, and I liked how we even kind of went into the rise in crime in places like New York. Uh, and we all know that that's in the main headlines. When you watch your national news, you hear about Chicago, you hear about New York, you hear about LA, you hear about Portland, you hear about these, these radical left cities that where a lot of crime occurred. And I hate to go left and right because I mean, with badge boys, we, we Jason and I, when we first started this show, we always said we would never go political, but sadly, how can cr- you not? Exactly. The crime is so rampant. And then when they use, the word reform to empower criminals i mean we have to address that and sadly the left has been kind of moving in that direction um not kind of (laughs) has been so you you can't avoid talking about it um but there's something i noticed that we're not talking about which is the why and was interesting uh perfectly time for this episode of badge boys last night uh, the local news station here in the Valley, uh, old school broadcast, um, got a hold of me and wanted an interview because they could not get any of the police departments to talk about the recent FBI crime stats that just came out for 2020. And again, they, they compare it from 2020 to 2019 and 2018 and so forth. And across the nation, not just those huge liberal cities, but cities like Phoenix, which Granted, Phoenix is a big city. It's the fifth or sixth largest city, depending on what what day you look at. Um, So when I looked at it, uh, you know, for this interview, um, I found that the uh, FBI crime stats, like I said, they came out and there was clearly a spike in homicides. Uh, And the Valley, talking about the uh, greater metropolitan Phoenix area, followed that trend. Uh, In Arizona, in 2019, there was 5.4 homicides per 100,000 people. Uh, In 2020, there were 6.9 homicides per 100,000 people. And then again, this is Arizona-wide. So in general, you know, it went up, you know, significantly, you know. Uh, in the Valley's top five cities also all saw increases. In Phoenix, uh, in 2019, there was 139 homicides. In 2020, 187 
almost 35% increase in that year. Mesa went from 9 to 19. Chandler went from 4 to 9. Again, they're smaller cities. Gilbert went from 1 to 4. Again, um, you know, these were definite increases. In fact, you look at Glendale, which is, you know, where our stadium is. When people see the Cardinals playing, they're actually watching Glendale, not Phoenix. Um, in 2018, they had 9. In 2020, they had 24. So there's this huge increase. So I was really proud to talk about the why, and that's important. We know it's happening. It's the why. And again, is there, no pun intended, is there one magic bullet? No, there's a lot of different reasons. But I kind of talked about the perfect storm. I went into detail about how we've emboldened criminal activity and how homicide is the ultimate criminal activity, regardless of, of how, you know, whether it's an armed robbery, whether it's domestic violence, it doesn't matter when criminal, act, when criminal behavior is emboldened, whether it's on a domestic violence level or whether it's on a theft or whether it's on just drugs, whatever that platform where the homicide occurred is based on criminal activity. And this is what the news played when I woke up in the morning. Homicides in Phoenix increased by 52% this year. From January to November, we've had 187 homicides compared to last year where we were at 123. Phoenix Police Sergeant Mercedes Fortune says 44 out of the 187 were domestic violence related, meaning those deaths increased by 175% compared to last year. Our clearance rate for homicides is 72%, which is almost 10% higher than the national average. Rape is down 5% and burglaries down 20 and thefts 11. It was a lot lower this year. The more people were staying home. Ali Vetner, KTAR News. Now, I don't know if you noticed, you didn't hear me. No. <laughs> there was no talk about the summer of love, the over 2,000 police officers injured during the first weeks of the rioting that occurred stemming from the George Floyd um, riots. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not upset with my media partners. Um, they basically got a, a sound piece from uh, the PIO to talk about, you know, the clearance rate, which is positive towards the police department is doing its job and, and clearing these crimes in the sense of solving them. But it's not clearing them in the sense of stopping them. We're not talking about proactiveness. That was never mentioned. We're not talking about the uh, rise in, in violent crimes across the board and instead they alluded to the pandemic <laughs> you know the fact that people are staying home as if the pandemic can be blamed for everything uh politically uh, this is what you didn't hear yeah the skyrocketing crime rates to include homicides are absolutely of no surprise to police officers seriously not a single police officer is going to be surprised by this sadly we all knew this day was coming when uh, a year or more ago uh, politicians, media, public figures, uh, celebrities, sports stars, you name it, were all out there basically emboldening criminal activity by constantly defunding the riots and the um, basically supporting these anti-cop groups. By doing that, the 2020 era and then and will be forever known in history as the rioting 20s. We allowed rioting to occur. Police stations were literally burnt to the ground. And the media supported this by repeatedly saying things like, quote, peaceful for the most part, end quote. When everything is burning around you, we actually had reporters mimicking that same narrative. And it was bizarre. It's like 
going to a fight and then at some point the guy is stabbed to death and saying the fight was peaceful for the most part. No, if it's violent, it wasn't peaceful for the most part. It became violent. Um, you have to flatly condemn those violent acts. Now, how does this create crime rates to rise now? Well, basically what happened is the rhetoric of demonizing police created a morale issue with police. Then the anti-cop groups, and we all know who they are, were asking or demanding or blackmailing uh, the funding police narratives. And many cities did it. They were dismantling police departments. They were losing resources. And by defunding, you're losing the training. So you're getting less trained officers. And officers were leaving. This all added to the perfect storm to allow criminal activity to flourish. I mean, we were literally emboldening crime. We just didn't, I hope, didn't realize they were doing it when these politicians were were acting in this real ill-suited behavior. But, uh, for example, look at Portland. Had over 100 days of straight rioting. 100 days. Police stations burnt down. An entire area completely taken away from the city. And instead of the city leaders, you know, condemning it, they condoned it. And they call it the summer of love. This has a absolute cause and effect with criminals. They're seeing this. Our children see bad behavior and mimic it. Why wouldn't criminals? And that's what happened. Criminals were absolutely emboldened by these actions. Then you add the political bizarreness of things like bail reform. Reform no longer means reform. When you're laying criminals free without bail, and they're committing more crimes. That's criminal empowerment. It's not reform. This all, like I said, add up to a perfect storm. We had this titanic boat of crime that was going down. And it, it, it's going to keep going. We have to turn it around. And in order to turn it around, we got to continue the path we're going. Hopefully, there is a paradigm shift. People, I think, most people are supporting law enforcement the bulk of people support law enforcement. It really was just all the people that had a microphone, the media, the celebrities, the sports stars, um, all these people that had something to gain by rallying this ugly action. And that is why right now we're going to see crime continue to rise to include the ultimate crime, which is homicide. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you didn't hear. <laughs> that was a long interview that they did not use. You know, and, and I'm glad you bring that up, Robin. You've been in this industry so much longer than I have in terms of, um, you know, the, the both behind the camera, be in front of the camera, uh, or behind the mic, in front of the mic, as it were. Uh, we understand that when you do an interview like this, they're not going to use the whole interview. They right. never they do. They use clips of it. Yeah. And they, they, you know, they use different parts, and, and you kind of, you know, <laughs> cross your fingers that they'll use the part where you don't make a mistake and say, you know, defunding the riots. <laughs> Taken <laughs> right? out of context. Right. Well, that, and I did a faux pas. I said defunding the riots when I meant defending the riots uh, were the, uh, the, the media was defending these riots by saying things like peaceful for the most part. And you would hear that same exact phrase, meaning there was some kind of directive. Sorry, somebody got a memo that was come down the line and they're all making this stupid statement, uh, minimizing the horrors that we were seeing. And it was atrocious. But instead of playing any of it, even even showing me as an idiot saying the word defunding the riots, instead of even doing that, not a single 
second was played. Instead, they got the PIO to speak to, um, you know, the, the, the good aspects of the police department, which is the solving rate, which is, a, you know, good for them. Um, but, yeah, not a word about the cause and effect. Well, it doesn't fit the narrative. And that's what we talk about constantly on this show, that things are often taken out of context and used in a vile way to create hysteria. And then when something comes along that doesn't fit the narrative, that person is told to shut up. You know, and I think this goes to why I love Dave Pratt so much at here at Star Worldwide Networks. Uh, he has these podcasts. He has brought in Jason and I to speak truth to what's going on. He has this love for law enforcement, for military, for America, for free enterprise, just a great guy. And this is not my, you know, planned pitch for Dave Pratt, but it just, I love the guy and love all podcasts that allow the voice to go out there because the broadcast, the media, like we just saw, that was proof that they absolutely don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear why this occurred. Uh, they'd rather gloss over it. And that's why, you know, the hell that w- that police went through, you're not hearing any rebuttal of what happened. They're just wanting to sweep it under the rug. And I'm not going to say I'm fine with that, but I am very positive thinking in terms of there is a paradigm shift because good people are listening to podcasts. Good people are talking about, yeah, that was horrible. Um, the more we talk about the truth that occurred, the more we won't relive it. Because guess what? Here's the bad news. There's going to be another police, police oops out there. There's going to be another bad cop out there. Out, out of almost a million cops, we're going to have a few bad ones. And we have to remember Thank that you. it's not a bad cop. It is a bad human being carrying a badge yeah. who has something going on inside of them that makes them feel superior and they do something and that's what we tend we tend to forget it is not a bad cop it is a bad person in a position wearing a badge thinking that they're untouchable and it will happen again uh, sadly, mark my words, there is going to be a cop out there who has like four years on, hasn't been weeded out. And again, when we talk about the, uh, the D's, I've been talking about, you know, the, the demonizing of the profession, the defunding of the police departments, the demoralizing aspect towards police in general, the attacking of individual officers by LeBron James with his little hourglass saying your time is next or whatever, that demoralizing aspect that they're doing has all been dismantling the entire fabric to include dismantling of actual police departments like in St. Louis that they're trying to literally get rid of entire police department. Um, This has the effect of a mass exodus. And the other paradigm shift I talked about was I, I hopefully this does not occur, but I fear that the security industry will become the pinnacle and the premier of police work and your city municipalities will become security guards, a complete reversal, if you will, uh, because of the mass exodus. I hope that does not come to fruition, but I can sadly see that happening in, in not too distant future if we continue this. And, and the reason I say all this is because we're going to see it again. There's going to be another, sadly, a George Floyd situation where uh, a cop that shouldn't be a cop um, does something stupid, and then these horrible cop-hating groups, and I'll say who they are, Antifa, um, BOM, they're going to jump on it 
because it feeds their false narrative. And we need to talk truth of this. Sadly, I wish they had played at least 10 seconds of my sound to talk about the, the why of all this so that doesn't repeat itself because um, we go through another uh, summer like we did in 2020 um, where 2,000 officers are injured in the first weeks of the months, months-long rioting. Um, we really will see that uh, paradigm shift in terms of good police officers no longer wanting to do police work and going into a private sector where they'll work for the Nancy Pelosi's and the Schumer's and they'll work for them for big bucks, less problems, and the police departments will get worse and that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy by these anti-cop organizations if we allow them to not be scolded. We need to scold them. We need to say what they did back then was bad and we all know it. But the media isn't, they're letting it go. In my, in my humble opinion, I believe the media is letting it go. Um, we need to hold them accountable. And unfortunately, they didn't do it. Nope. And the big problem that I'm, I'm with you on that, the big problem we're going to start to see, the breakdown, because you take away the money, where's the training going to come from? It's not. You know, and I don't know if you're aware, I know we've been talking about this off the air, but the big case going on in Utah with the young girl that was killed at the hands of her boyfriend, that's what we all believe because of a domestic violence situation. Sure looks that way. And there's a lot of things that are lost in translation. And if the training isn't there, these officers did the best they could to separate the two of them. And, you know, back in my day, going through domestic violence in 1987, one party didn't have to be arrested to go to jail. Not until Nicole Brown Simpson was killed by OJ did they make that rule in effect that one party had to go to jail. And in this case with this young girl, I watched the video and I could see the signs. But when I first saw the excerpts of the video, seeing what had happened to the young man at the hands of the young lady, I did not know those were defensive marks. I believe she had probably attacked him because that's what the media pushes out there, that rhetoric. But if you watch the body cam footage of the full hour and 17 minutes, as a survivor of domestic violence, I see the signs. But a lot of times, officers aren't trained in that capacity. And you need to be trained. We need the money yes. for the training. Because without the training, then it becomes subpar police departments. And we saw that in the 50s and 60s where they weren't training. They hand you a badge and a gun. I had a buddy of mine as a Phoenix cop. He came from, I want to say it was Montana. And he said he was uh, the, the sheriff out there. He had no experience. <laughs> you know, When he first came on the department, they just handed him a gun and a, wow. and a badge and you're a cop. And then he got his certification down the road. And that's scary if we ever go back to those days. And I can see it coming. If we allow these anti-cop groups to keep to to not just preach this crap, but not call them out on it later when everything calms down. Because the good people said no more. And the funding cries kind of went away. A lot of these uh, politicians are scrambling now because they're, they're, they're not being reelected because the good people said no more. But we need to make sure the media also holds people accountable. The fourth estate has not been doing their job, quite frankly. And that is our Cop Talk. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. We both signed up for the service and are so happy with it. 
OfficerProphecy.com is offering a very special deal for listeners of the Badge Boys. This is a great deal. Go to OfficerProphecy.com forward slash BB. Their team of current and retired law enforcement officers will remove your information from the top 30 sites that are showing your home address, your phone number, and so much more. When you sign up now with our link, you'll get a free bonus mailed to you, plus your first month of monitoring for free. You don't have to be an officer to sign up. If you are a family member or just don't want your personal information out there on the Internet, you can join OfficerPrivacy.com. We've met the owner, had him on our show, great guy, and he will take care of you, I promise. If you care about your online privacy, and I highly recommend the service he provides, sign up at OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. Well, my, my, my. We happen to know that guy. Criminals think they are so smart. The problem for them is the police are smarter. Detectives resolve things. They don't give up. I'm not the only one who answered the call. I am retired Sergeant Darren Burke. Detective Chris McMullen. Detective Frank Diller. Robert Cushing. Vermont State Police. Now, where did he come from? Every detective has that one case. This is that one case for me. He thinks he can outsmart these detectives. Well, he has another thing coming. You're not going to be able to run from it. You want to find that smoking gun. He does what he was made to do. Find the bad guy. That is, as they say in tennis, game, set, and match. American Detective, coming exclusively to Discovery Plus, early 2021. Learn more at discoveryplus.com. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. You, you know, this isn't just uh, my favorite segment. And uh, watching you smile and giggle over there, Robin, I know this isn't just your favorite segment. There is someone listening right now by the name of Jason Schechterly that is saying, play the song. Stop talking, Darren. Play the tune. Uh, yeah, we are going to do another set of loony laws. Uh, they may have made sense when they were written, but today their laws are just questionable or just plain loony. They're in every state. And here's the next set of loony laws. Yeah, the first uh, loony law comes from Iowa, the entire state. Uh, There's a (laughs) a law where you're not allowed to pass off margarine as real butter. Uh, Yeah, I think of those commercials, you know, uh, it's parquet, it's butter, it's parquet, it's butter. That commercial would be arrested. You're not even allowed to attempt to to pass it off. Yeah, And it's punishable by up to 30 days in jail. And six hundred twenty-five dollar fine. Now, other than that commercial, you know, parquet butter, parquet butter. Other, than, do you? Am I dating myself? It's probably in the seventies. Se- okay, okay, I was born in okay, late sixties, okay, so okay. yeah, it has to be uh, the seventies. Yeah, I was in high school at the time, but uh, we'll, we'll let that go. <laughs> uh, I have to ask you: Was there a reason Iowa thought this was important? I mean, are there salesmen going door to door trying to sell fake butter so they had to create this law? I mean, you slipped me the butter, the fake butter. Yeah, kind of like a, a a drug. Maybe it was the fentanyl from the seventies, fake butter. Uh, maybe I, I don't I, know. I don't, That's I don't know. Just I, I just, it makes no sense. No. Uh, leaving Iowa, we go to Kansas. Uh, Kansas 
snowball fights are a crime. Oh, well, that's just BS, man. Uh, that's insane. Wow. That's insane. Uh, now, it's, it's again, technically, it's still legal to throw snowballs in Topeka, Kansas. Not Kansas entire state, but Topeka. So uh, now. Really? Yeah. Thanks to this weirdly worded law in the criminal code in like the 60s, it's, it's unlawful to, quote, throw any stones. Okay. That's, that's, I'm, I'm okay Stones are that. okay. Yeah. Sticks and stones, brush my bones, sort of things. Yeah, it can, it can hurt snowballs or any other projectiles so i don't know what they're thinking about putting the word snowball in there but because they put it in there it's illegal to throw snowballs in topeka now in 2005 um this is kind of interesting in 2005 mayor bill bunton held a press briefing outside city hall and wanted to do, to basically toss away this law and he did it by grabbing a snowball huge snowball what they called a whopper and threw it at a tree and then stated, quote, I'm going to repeal this dumb law. Least our already crowded prisons are filled up with children who, while making a snowman, got carried away and had a snowball fight. Now, good for him, except he didn't do it. <laughs> it was all talk. I just don't get that. No. You know? Yeah. He made this big press briefing in 2005, said all this. But, uh, you know, 16 years later, it's still illegal to throw a snowball in Topeka, Kansas. And I personally would be throwing a snowball at that mayor for not doing what he said he was going to do. Well, so that's here's, th- here's my bad. When I was a kid in fourth grade, I remember a couple of us getting off the school bus and throwing oranges at the back of the school bus. I could see that being illegal because they could break windows and hurt people. Yeah, that's like, but a, like snow? a softball. But yeah, snowball is just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. You get a little red mark. No yeah. big deal. But you, we sh- probably should not play this in Iowa because they may replace snowballs with oranges. And then that you know, would be okay, though, because they do hurt when they hit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially yeah, when you got a good throwing arm. Yeah, they don't leave a sun kiss. They leave oh, a. Uh, I know. I had to say it. Uh, Kentucky. Uh, duels are prohibited in Kentucky. Um, and that makes sense. Okay, duels, you know, but here's here's the kicker. All public officials and attorneys in Kentucky must swear an oath, even presently, that they have not fought a duel with deadly weapons. We're talking about, you know, the old school with the swords and the, and the, uh, the guns, nor acted as a second in another's personal deadly duel. Now, this oath took effect in 1848, and as a result, many would-be duelists that you know had some type of you know grief with somebody took it out on each other without the weapons, and then they were fine. Uh, so, yeah, basically, you just can't use a weapon, but you can beat each other to death. That's fine. But, I can't uh, even see politicians doing that. You know what's funny when you say that? Alexander Hamilton which was one of the founding fathers. And I'm not a big history buff at all, but I, I do know this. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, which was one of the founding fathers, who never being president, but my God, he was involved. Uh, I want to say he was secretary of state, or he was involved in some way in, in, in the early government. And he was a general in the Revolutionary War. He was, uh, he, he was part of the commerce of the United States when it started laying its foundation in commerce. Uh, he died from a duel. Mm-hmm. And do you know who the duelist was that killed him? I can't remember the name and I know what you're talking about. Vice, a sitting vice president of the United States by the name of Burr. He was a yeah. sitting vice Andrew president Burr, right. Burr. So when we think about, you know, um, Vice President Harris, I guess it can get worse. I guess, I guess, I guess. <laughs> I'm not I'm, going I'm there. It, I'm just going to say. It. I mean, you know, at least she's not, you know, shooting people. Okay, oh. in, uh, <laughs> in Louisiana, I'll leave quickly. In Louisiana, crawfish theft can be a felony. 
You heard me right. If you steal $1,500 worth of crawdads, you could get up to 10 years in prison and a $3,000 fine. Now, if you think about a crawdad, and I think I know what they're talking about. There's, you know, they, sometimes they even call them, um, what is it, mud? Like a salty dog? Uh, no, so. they're, they're, they're teeny, like shellfish, but they're tiny. Um, like a sardine? Mud bugs. Okay. That's what it was. Mud okay. bugs, crawdads. They're teeny. I mean, I would think maybe a penny a piece, maybe. So $1,500 is, you know, like 150000 of them, I guess. I don't know. But anyways, it is a felony if you steal $1,500 worth of crawdads. Can you imagine being in prison? For 10 years, and you're talking to the other cellmates, you know, the murders, the rapists, and what are you in for? You know, um, I was in for stealing shellfish. I can't even imagine how much alcohol that lawmaker had in his system when he came up with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, shellfish specifically, naming them out. Okay, fair fair enough. Uh, (laughs) And now, just in time for Halloween, our last loony law comes from Maine, where cemetery advertising is prohibited. It is forbidden to post advertisements on a person's tombstone in the city of Wells, Maine, uh, as part of a lengthy list, apparently, of cemetery regulations. Uh, I just don't get the need. Are, are there really people looking for shopping deals on tombstones? I mean, is it, you know, they yeah. put coupons on tombstones now? Or, yeah. Yeah, so know. it's just a really a loony law, but perfectly timed for Halloween. And here is the tune we're all waiting for. And now I have my beautiful Rockin' Robin. She is going to give us our heroic headline. Uh, You know, I never do as good at this as Jason does, but I will do my best. VA police officer saves a life at a wedding. Oh, wow. I know. During a recent wedding ceremony at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, Missouri, a wedding guest in the stands collapsed into unconsciousness. Fortunately, Larry Templeton, a police officer at the Oklahoma City VA, had VA basic life support training and jumped into action. A member of the wedding party in full groomsman attire, Templeton instantly leapt over chairs and other guests and rushed to the unresponsive man's aid. I felt like a duck on the water, said Templeton, an Army veteran. Boy, what is it with the Army veterans today, right? Go Army. You got Jason outnumbered. (laughs) (laughs) Calm on the surface, but paddling like crazy underneath, trying to get everything right and save his life. Equipped with the necessary skills to perform life-saving measures, Templeton immediately began mouth-to-mouth breathing and chest compressions. Next, Templeton assigned someone to find an automated external defibrillator, an AED. Isn't that something that Brandon, 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 yeah, yeah. he talks about that all the time. He directed another bystander to call 911. When the AED was located, he gave instructions to volunteers on the proper placement of the AED pads and the safe activation of the machine. The machine advised a shock was required to return the individual's heart to a normal rhythm. The shock was administered and Templeton resumed CPR. After about 15 minutes, the man regained consciousness just as paramedics arrived. Recent studies suggest that less than half of those who suffer from cardiac arrest receive any type of CPR assistance from a bystander. 
When those type of situations arise, the common response is that no bystander was certified in CPR. There is also an aspect of fear involved causing those around to hesitate in administering these critical skills. That's very true. Larry was very professional, very composed, and very in control of his actions, the mother of the groom said. Larry knew that what had to be done, and he did it. The wedding guest is alive today thanks to Templeton's quick response. After paramedics took control of the situation, he got up, dusted himself off, and headed back to assume his groomsman duties. We are very proud of Larry and that he implemented the training that he received from the Oklahoma City VA to save a man's life. How do you like that? It is perfect. It is so beautiful on so many levels, and it is perfect for my segue to the inspirational close. And like you said, we're not going to do justice to anything Jason does. We're just going to do the best we can. But that story highlights the importance of what Brandon Griffith has done. And he was, for those who don't remember, he was a guest probably about 10 shows ago. Uh, we've become actual friends. I spoke to a event that Brandon did uh, last weekend where it's his nonprofit is called Griffith Blue Heart Foundation, where he raises money so that they can get these AEDs in the hands of first responders, since it's the first responders who are normally first on these scenes. Yeah, the police officers. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, yes, thank you. As far as fire department, absolutely they should have them. But it's usually the police officers that are first there. And so he's had this foundation. I went and spoke to it uh, in terms of my loss and my son, which was cardiac arrest. And it's just such a wonderful thing that uh, this young man has done, Brandon, in terms of literally dying from cardiac arrest. And then his wife is able to keep him alive long enough so that when the ambulance arrives and they get him to the hospital. They can literally revive him, bring him back from the dead. And now he spends every day making the, our planet, our state, our country, because it's not just here in the valley. It's everywhere. He's trying to do this better than the day he found it. He absolutely is doing these great things, uh, bringing these ADs to the public by way of our police first responders. So to Brandon Griffith and the entire, entire crew at Griffith um, Blue Heart Foundation, congratulations, kudos, your truly inspiring work saving lives. Uh, so that is my inspirational closing message. I want to end the show with a huge thank you to Robin Cote. You always make the show so good. Uh, it's your technical skill. I always talk about you being the brains that outfit. Super glue uh, and duct tape. Our missing uh, comrade in arms. He is the heart of the show. So I apologize for not having that heart there. Uh, also, I want to thank uh, Dave Pratt because without Dave Pratt, we wouldn't be able to do the show. But most of all, I want to thank you, the listening audience, because without you, there is no badge, boys. So thank you for each week. Spread the word. And until next week, stay safe. Badge Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Badge Boys.